Welcome to Ocean Matters from the Bertarelli Foundation. I'm Helen Cheresky. The blue of our blue planet is Earth's defining feature, but we don't generally hear much about what's going on underneath the surface. And we are missing out, not just on the fascinating ways that life's adapted to a watery world, or the immensity of the ocean engine that keeps our planetary systems running. What we're missing is the perspective that we are inhabitants of an ocean world, and everything that happens down there is linked to us up here. And that's what this new podcast series is all about. We'll be anchored in the Chagos Archipelago, right in the middle of the vast Indian Ocean. And this is a region that's made up of 58 tiny islands and seven ring-shaped reefs called atolls. And the whole thing covers an area the size of France. On land, it's a haven for breeding seabirds and turtles. And underwater, it's rich with coral and fish and bigger predators like shark and tuna. This is a fascinating place, with a diversity of marine life and plants like nowhere else on Earth, and that makes it a really important place to carry out scientific research. We often talk about Earth's oceans, but Earth only has one. All of its ocean is connected, and so the Chagos Archipelago will let us open the door on the global ocean, and we'll be digging into the impact that humans have on this vast blue, why they matter, and what we need to do to make the ocean's future better than its present. We're going to start with the ocean's recent past. What do we know about the ocean 200 years ago, and how does that compare with the way it is now? As Maya Angelou said, you can't really know where you're going until you know where you have been. Over the last 100, 150 years, there certainly has been this, this shift. People are now aware that we can exploit to the point where we really do a detriment to these ecosystems and, and therefore to us. So instead of a reef which is covered 60-70% by corals, it's now 60-65% dead and bare. And the corals are crumbling and they're turning into rubble. And so the changes that are happening now are extremely fast and the corals can't cope with the rate of change that you're seeing environmentally now. It feels as though we are constantly playing catch-up. As we get better at measuring these changes, they're happening more and more quickly. So we need the help of history to see what the ocean was like 10 or even 100 years ago. Even the Chagos Archipelago, a marine protected area where fishing and other damaging activities are banned, can't escape climate change. And the changes have been so quick that individual humans have watched them happen. Professor Charles Shepard from the University of Warwick has been visiting the Chagos Archipelago for 45 years. Since his first visit there in 1975, Charles has been a driving force behind conservation efforts in that region and also the vital science that's carried out there. He's seen the archipelago at its best, but more recently also how it's been impacted by rising sea temperatures. So, what does a region that's so detached from the rest of the world look like? And what can it reveal about the state of our ocean? When Charles and I spoke, he started by giving me an idea of what it's like to dive into the waters of this unique region. The first thing that strikes you is the kaleidoscope of fish. Now I'm a coral person and I like the corals and they are beautiful, they're colourful, abundant, but before you get to them you might not even see the corals at first because of the number of fish in the water in the way. 
and as you descend there's a gentle slope usually to start with and you will swim out to what we call the drop-off where the reef suddenly becomes much more steep and plunges into depths where you just cannot go. All the way down there are clouds of fish in the water above you, around you, often they orbit you and as you go deeper down to where the light is still abundant but not too bright and the waves have gone but there is water movement still, that's where everything wants to live. And if you thought the shallows was rich and good, then what I call the mid-depths is even more so. And how about the big species? You know, we think there's, we, when we think of coral reefs now, there's always the little fish, the parrotfish, and the squirrelfish, and all of those kind of bobbing in and out. And then, you know, sometimes if you're on a reef now, in the background, you'll see a big shark or a ray go past behind you. How about the bigger fish like those? In the 1970s, they were everywhere. We had to dive with a shark guard on every group of scientists. We did have to poke away sharks quite often especially later on in the day or very early in the morning, when it's perhaps still their feeding time. And several times, the shark guard would abort the dive because the sharks will arch their back a bit and they would have a posture which looked aggressive, and it is aggressive. There would be anything up to 100 sharks in the water at one time. We would never see less than a half a dozen. However, then poaching began... Now it's quite different, and they've gone. They are recovering a bit, but they're still nothing like what they were. So did you understand, when you were there in the early 70s, you know, the first time you went diving or snorkelling out on the reefs, was it immediately obvious that how special this was? I mean, did you feel it was something, you were exploring something new and exciting when you first got there? Yes, I think so. The corals were so vibrant and the fish were so abundant. Yes, it would take our breath away. And we had dived in uh, Mauritius and uh, sort of Southeast Asia and other places like that. But there are lots of people there. And they had been affected. There's this thing called the shifting baseline syndrome, which means that there's a tendency by any human being that what you see when you start off on your scientific career is what you think it sort of should be like. But it hasn't. It's changed all the time. And probably even the Chagos Archipelago reefs had changed significantly since before man was there at all. Maybe. We don't know. We have no records of that at all. And for the Chagos Archipelago specifically, how have those reefs changed? Firstly, what has happened is that there have been these ocean heat waves where the temperature has risen above what we now know is the critical temperature of about 29 degrees. So the corals bleach and die. So do a lot of other organisms that are symbiotic, such as anemones. After the first heat wave in 98, the fish stayed just as highly abundant as they ever have been. And they were many times more abundant than anywhere else where the measurements have been done in the same way around the world. After the last heat waves, which were in 2015 and 2016, the changes that are happening now are extremely fast and the corals can't cope with the rate of change that you're seeing environmentally now. So instead of a reef which is covered 60-70% by corals, it's now 60-65% dead and bare. And the corals are crumbling and they're turning into rubble. And that's like a liquid sort of sandpaper. So if you're a larvae going to settle, even if you do settle, you'll be bulldozed in the next storm or, or the next high tide even. 
When people visit the area now, you know, you've seen it in your lifetime, you've seen these changes directly. And with lots of the impacts of climate change, you know, it's kind of too slow and it's hard to see. But with corals, the changes are very quick. So, Charles, you've seen a lot of people visit these reefs, people who are seeing it for the first time and people who have seen it, you know, for the first time decades before. What's the difference in the reaction between those two groups? Well, a group that's seen it, say, in the late noughties, where it has recovered pretty much, they give an, a variety of wows when they surface. But those who have seen it, when it's in the thick of its bleaching and mortality, as the heat wave is just ending, which is when the corals start to die and so on like that, I've seen sort of, I, well, I've seen tears underwater. People look at the devastation that's there, especially if they've known what it was like before. And I think that happens all around the world, actually. It looks like a building site or a bomb has gone off. It can look that bad. So we've talked about the changes in the area itself. So how about the science being done? You know, what sort of research is happening now and how has that changed over the years? It's changed a great deal. In the early days, you must remember, we never knew we'd ever be able to get back. Now, thanks to the Betrelli programme and funding, there are lots of expeditions every year using equipment from a variety of institutions, which is much more sophisticated, much more sort of technical. We still want to focus it on how the Chegos archipelago works, how it behaves, where it gets its nutrients from, and so on. We still want to keep monitoring what are now a very long timeline series of sea temperature levels in a lot of places around the archipelago. So now the science coming out is as sophisticated as you get in the best marine institutions on reefs around the world. If you want to find out more about Charles' research, then visit the Bertarelli Foundation's website, marine.science. It's clear that our reefs have taken a huge hit over the past few decades, as extreme warming events have increased in severity and frequency. And whilst some scientists, like Charles, are working to understand the impact of these events on our reefs before it's too late, Others are going back in time, studying samples taken from the bottom of the ocean over 100 years ago. I'm talking about old ocean mud. But why would anyone go poking about in that? Well, to find out, I was invited to the Natural History Museum's off-site store. This is the sort of place I love. It was a maze of wooden cabinets with tantalising labels on their doors. And it was so easy to imagine how many stories were lurking behind each one. Dr Steve Stukins, who's the senior curator of micropaleontology at the Natural History Museum, was there to show me some specific hidden treasures. Yes, so this is um, an original Challenger sample vial with the original label on from 9th of September 1873. So this is a sample of the ocean bottom deposit from somewhere in the South Atlantic, from one of the sites that they sampled, 675 fathoms depth. (laughs) We just did a bit of calculation to work out that 675 fathoms is about 1.2 kilometres which is a long way down. Not as deep as the ocean gets, but a long way down. So some of the oldest samples you've got here are from the Challenger expeditions, which is very exciting. I get very excited by anything to do with Challenger. So tell us a little bit about that expedition to start with. So the Challenger expedition was the first major oceanographic survey, and it sailed from 1872 to 1876. 
and they essentially wanted to look at everything to do with the oceans. So the ocean bottom samples they collected, they covered the tropics, the Southern Ocean, High Atlantic, Pacific. There is times when they sailed more and sampled more around the, you know, the nice tropical islands, say. Well, wouldn't we all? <laughs> exactly. So we might have a fair few sort of coralline sands in our collection that but there are a good mixture of samples from all over the oceans okay so peering through the microscope here so what i can see is loads of tiny little shells so they're kind of bulbous there's some swirly ones they're all kind of sandy colored sort of beige but they're loads of different shapes but they're clearly quite intact little shells so what am i looking at so what you're looking at are foraminifera these are single-celled organisms on that sample you've got both planktonic forams, forams for short foraminifera. They live in the surface of the oceans and they're widespread across the whole world. And then there's benthic forams and they're the ones that live on the sea floor. And they're really good at indicating different ocean conditions. So they're really useful for looking at past environments as well as the modern. So there's a mixture of two. There's the ones that live on the seafloor and there's the ones that live on the surface and fall to the seafloor. But they've all got these hard little cases. Tell me about those and why they're interesting. A lot of the forums that we look at in the Challenger um, expedition are made of calcium carbonate. So the shells you see, these sort of pale white colour. The amazing thing that you can do with them is look at the chemistry. And if you look back in time through the sediments, you can work out temperatures using the chemistry of the shell. So you can look at the ocean temperatures, how they've changed in the past. You can also look at different things like the size of the forearms. Have they changed through time? All the different species, the assemblages. There are lots of different species. Some like it warmer, some like it cooler, some like nutrient-rich. So looking at the assemblages, you can really work out lots about the ocean. So in a way, it's a bit like looking at fashion, isn't it? Like people wear things that reflect their environment a little bit. And it's what these are is a snapshot. So what can we see? What do you learn about the sea in 1872? Okay, so a recent study we did actually was look at the challenger samples from a few sites and compare them to recent forums. And we looked at the shell thickness. That's important because... The shell is obviously the protective outer wall for the the organism. And we found in every different species and every specimen that we examined that the shell thickness is thinner recently than it was about 150 years ago. I mean, if it was one species, you would say, well, maybe that species had changed or something had happened. But the fact that it's all of them, why, why might that be? We've said that it's possibly down to ocean acidification. Over numerous generations of, of forearms, which this shows, it shows that the forearms are struggling to build their shell. It's actually 30 times more acidic now than it was about 150-odd years ago, pre-industrial levels. There's less free carbonate in the, in the water for it to use to build the shell, so it's actually just building thinner shell. And obviously that's worrying that all these organisms are struggling to actually produce their protective shell. So there's a bit of context here, isn't there, which is that uh, the ocean is alkaline, and you need an alkaline environment to build a calcium carbonate shell. And the less alkaline it is, the harder work it is. So one last question. So we can, you can see in 150 years that the shells have gone from wherever they were to as thin as they are now. What happens next? How bad is this? Are they, are they going to get so thin they disappear? What's the problem? Well, 
This is where the future research has to go, hopefully sooner rather than later, to look at these things. There have been past events in the geological history. However, the rate of warming at the moment is faster than any of those times, and we're trying to sort of work out whether the organisms can keep up with their strategies of maybe building thinner shells or not, or, or whether actually they're just all going to go extinct. And that is the big worry that we're just going to end up with more extinctions of all these organisms. I'm really grateful to the Natural History Museum in London for showing me around. It's sometimes hard to appreciate how much these ecosystems are tightly interwoven. The reefs, the animals that live there, and even the life on land all rely on each other. If the smaller species disappear, perhaps due to ocean acidification, that takes away a food source for the larger fish, one that's key to their survival. Nature generally keeps things in balance, but human activities are throwing that balance off. The global fishing industry is massive. Up to 10% of the global population relies on fisheries for their livelihood. Illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing is one of the most pressing issues affecting fisheries management and conservation efforts. Understanding the history of our ocean and the role humans have played in it is a subject known as marine historical ecology. It's all about understanding past conditions of the marine environment around the world and how our attitudes and fishing capabilities have changed these environments over the years. And those historical records can reveal a surprising amount. We're not talking about analysing scientific studies and samples here, or even formal textbooks. We're talking about newspapers. Dr Ruth Thurston is a marine historical ecologist from the University of Exeter, and she explained exactly what newspapers can divulge. Newspapers and indeed any other type of historical documentation, such as travellers' accounts, government reports, correspondence, and really any, any form of non-fictional writing, provide us with these windows to the past. And using these multiple historical documents, you can examine a range of human-ocean interactions from centuries ago until the present, and of course, the way that we perceived our oceans and the marine life within it. And so... You can get some information there about what people thought, but, you know, we're used to thinking about our oceans in the past through scientific data, through measuring things and, you know, sort of what elements were present and, and how many fossils there were. How do they complement the scientific data? So, for example, from short descriptions of, of past fishing trips in these newspapers, we can learn so much incredible information. So we can learn about the location that people were fishing in. We know, for example, how many people were fishing, how many lines went in the water, how long they were fishing for. And we know how many and which species of fish were caught. And sometimes we even know the size of many of these fish. This level of detail is really important to know when you want to discover the extent of change. For example, when we know the amount of, of effort that it's taken to catch a certain number of fish, so how many hours people have been fishing for, how many people have been fishing, and if we know where people are fishing, so when they're moving into new areas to keep up their catches, we can be far more confident of demonstrating where real change has occurred in their marine ecosystem. The other thing that these newspapers can do is give us a sense of what was special or normal at the time of printing. So back in the 1870s, for example, in, in Australia, on the East Coast, where I lived for a few years and, and explored this, this particular fishery, several hundred fish 
between a group of people for a few hours of fishing was certainly a good day, but it wasn't an exceptional day. Indeed, groups of fishermen would get mocked in the newspapers if they didn't bring home to what would seem to us today like a ridiculously large amount of fish. So from this, we can gauge what people deemed as a normal day out back then and compare that to what is our normal today. Because there's this joke in society today that, you know, a fisherman will always exaggerate the size of the fish that they caught, right? So are these honest reports or are people exaggerating to show that they're the best fishermen? That's a really good question. And I have spent a lot of time trying to work out how honest or exaggerated these reports might be. I think the important thing to be aware of is to never really use only one source of information in your research. So, for example, I was looking at these old newspapers of fishing trips on the east coast of Australia around southeast Queensland. And I was also able to find some old surveys that occurred around the same time in the early 19th century where people used similar gear and they were going after the same species of fish. And what we were able to see from that is that these fishermen who went out recreationally fishing, they were getting these enormous catches, but so were the scientists. And their catches were completely comparable to these surveys. And that gave me a lot more confidence in the data. I love the idea of being able to calibrate exaggeration. (laughs) Yes. That's brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Very important to do. (laughs) So what sorts of changes can you see? I mean, in terms of the technology that was being used over that time period? Some increases in in terms of changes in technology are really obvious. So fishing from rowboats with cotton line during the early 20th or late 19th century is very different from today's fiberglass motorboats that have monofilament lines. Other gears, so say commercial fishing gears such as bottom trawls, they got bigger and heavier as we moved from sail power to steam power. And fishing lines became longer, they had more hooks on them. So these changes in some ways are are relatively obvious. But unless we put old gear and new gear side by side, it's very difficult to quantify the amount by which a new gear would improve our ability to catch fish. And as a result, these, these improvements in fishing technologies is often called technological creep or improvements in fishing power. Technological creep is quite a good term because they really do, these improvements creep up on us. And sometimes we have really big, dramatic changes in the technology that gets developed and, and really changes the way in which people can fish. And other times it's just very slight improvements, very slowly all the time, to the point where people who are fishing or who are managing the fishery or who are uh, researching the fishery find it really difficult to to quantify this sort of insidious creep of technological power. It must be terrifying to look back over this because what you're describing, you know, over this very long period is that more effort is going into catching fish, but fish are still being caught and it's fewer fish, even though we're better at catching them. And that doesn't say very much for the number of fish left in the sea. Can you glean anything about the picture there, not just in terms of catching, but how many are there? How many were there to be caught? Well, that is a really good question. And that's not something that is very easy to pick up from these these written documents because of course you have this sort of almost this barrier it's people describing their interactions um people were not able to see underneath the surfaces of the water until the the 1950s and scuba gear and even then we're very limited we can only really guess at how many fish there might be i mean there are some amazing numbers out there so for example in the firth of forth which is in southeast scotland it's a native oyster fishery since the Roman times. 
it reached its peak around the 1830s. And in one year, it was estimated that 30 million oysters were taken out of this system. Individual boats could end up with up to 6,000 oysters in a day throughout the season. So that wasn't every day of the year. That was over the course of a few months. Now, the fishery, not surprisingly, started to go downhill shortly after that. They did the first scientific surveys of that in the 1890s, and they reasoned that there were no more than 500,000 live oysters in that system. This was a system that 60 years before had carried on going even when 30 million oysters had been taken out. They're horrifying numbers, aren't they? And it is, I guess it's also and just evidence of how humans are not very good at seeing the long-term picture. I mean, if you told them back in the day that if you do this, there'll be none left, you know, it might have changed their behaviour, but it does, it seems very short-sighted, doesn't it, to us now? It, it does, but I, I do really feel for the people working in these systems. So the reason the scientists were in there was because the fishermen were really, really concerned and they'd been saying for 50 years, this is, this is a problem. And let's come to the, the wider picture of human relationships with the ocean, because I think to some extent at the moment, we're a historical anomaly because we use it, but we don't look after it. And that wasn't true in the past. So what can you see, you know, from all the documents you've looked at, you've got inside people's heads over 200 years. How have attitudes to the ocean changed over that time? Over the last 100, 150 years, there certainly has been this this shift. People are now aware that we can exploit to the point where we really do a detriment to these ecosystems and, and therefore to us. But we consistently underestimate the magnitude of changes that have occurred in our oceans as, as a result of human activity. And essentially, without an appreciation of what has gone before, we have a tendency to, to judge the ecosystem changes that we observe in our lifetime with what we first knew. Now, that's our default baseline, unless we actively go and look. So, for example, today we'll think of muddy seabeds as the norm around the UK. You know, we have rocky beds and we have muddy seabeds. But actually, many of these muddy seabeds were, were once thriving native oyster or sabalaria reefs, and they supported a multitude of other marine species, including the fish that we like to eat. So this is where history and this, this historical documentation can tell us what has changed and, and what we've lost. And what we can do then is with that information, we can start to make more informed decisions about what we want our marine ecosystems to look like in the future. Today's podcast has reminded me of the importance of perspective. It's really striking to me that at the moment, we're only ever presented with one of two extremes when it comes to the ocean. The first is perfect and astonishing wildlife, the absolute best of what the ocean has to offer. But the second is the dirtiest, most shocking beaches and destroyed habitats. Most of the ocean is somewhere in between, and we need to face up to the messy nuance that comes with this reality. But what if that first untouched ocean isn't the right starting point? It's not as if human impacts on the ocean only started in 2020. It's often said that in order to improve, you need to learn from your mistakes. So we should learn from everything humans have done to the ocean, including the things that happened before anyone alive today was born. We just can't afford the time to make yet more mistakes before we take these lessons on board. Next time on Ocean Matters, we'll be using that foundation to look at the present of coral reefs and exploring what's in store for the future of reefs worldwide. If you have a moment, please leave a review of Ocean Matters wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. 
I'm Helen Chersky, and Ocean Matters is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. <laughs>